All right, so I thought this uh, month we would talk about hope. I gave a conference on hope about a year and a half ago, and I will cover some of the same territory, but I'm unapologetic about that because, first of all, not all of you were here for that, and second of all, uh, this is undoubtedly the most neglected theological virtue. We hear a lot about faith and charity, but we don't hear so much about hope. Also, I think hope is a really important virtue to focus on during Lent. And uh, certainly the mystery of the transfiguration, the fathers of the church, uh, John Paul II, saw this as a sign of hope. So Jesus knows that he is on his way to crucifixion. And in fact, uh, it's right after the transfiguration that he reveals that he's going to be crucified. And Peter remonstrates with him about this. Uh, So the fathers of the church saw the transfiguration as instilling in the hearts of the apostles hope so that they could not despair at the time of the crucifixion. And uh, it was certainly, obviously, a great test for them. So uh, the transfiguration is an important mystery for today. A lack of hope, if we don't have hope, we'd expect in our world to see things like increased anxiety and despair. And... uh, I think that's relatively obvious. I don't think I have to argue that that's something we see. Uh, anxiety and uh, you know defections from the church uh, is, is a kind of despair, thinking that uh, somehow the church has lost her mission. Uh, we, we no longer put our hope in God's presence in the church when, when we do that. There are many factors that contribute to this. And at the end of today's conference, I'm going to talk about the particulars of our political system and the way it's kind of played out in recent decades. Uh, But let me start with consumerism. I gave a talk up at uh, St. Mary's in Winnetka some years ago on prayer, and I, 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 somehow my text from that conference got garbled on the server, so I don't have the definition that I gave for consumerism there, but uh, a number of the people who came to this talk were very excited about it, so, My reconstructed definition is something like this. Consumerism as an economic system is one in which uh, we increase the desire of consumers in order that they'll spend more and make more money. Uh, So we we sort of keep the economic system going by making sure everybody desires lots of stuff. And this is why we rely on advertising and things like that because uh, if you don't see the ad for uh, Mountain Dew or whatever, you might not think of drinking it, right? So, uh, but the problem is this contributes to a lack of hope, in my opinion, uh, because it, the desires that it stokes in us are not uh, ultimate desires. They're very immediate desires. We want to uh, go out and get that Mountain Dew now. Uh, it's, uh, it's really hard to come across advertising during our Lenten fast at the monastery. You know, you see an advertisement for McDonald's and you think, ooh boy, <laughs> only five weeks to go before we can eat meat again. Uh, so you, you want that hamburger right now, right? And um, the problem with this is getting stuck in these immediate desires doesn't allow us to recognize our need for more important desires, to hope in things that are not present yet, that we're not going to get for a while, right? So like, kids around Christmas time are very hopeful for Christmas because they know they're going to get presents. And if you gave them the presents on December 17th, it would ruin Christmas, right? Because they wouldn't, there wouldn't be the excitement. There wouldn't be the, the desire. It, it would just be flat. 
and if we give ourselves everything we want right at the moment we want them, we don't have a chance to work up a certain desire for things that are more important that we're going to receive later on. The theological virtue of hope aims at the world to come. So it's an eschatological virtue. Uh, we can learn to see this world to come in figure in this world. So this, another way to say this is in mystery or in sacrament. The transfiguration, again, is a nice symbol of this because the, the apostles look at the same body here of Jesus, but suddenly they see the reality behind it. They see the word of God. They see the glory of the sun, right? And it's astonishing. It's just, it's too much. And then suddenly they see Jesus again. They just see his human aspect, right? But now they, they have some hope that someday they'll see that the, the Son of God in glory forever, for real, and no longer mediated through faith and hope. So the, the sacraments of the church, the mysteries that the church teaches, help us to see the kingdom breaking in now. We can see bits and pieces of it, and I'll talk more about this in a bit. Uh, but we don't see it entirely, because if we could see it entirely, we wouldn't need hope. We wouldn't need the, the virtue of hope. So hope keeps us going when we run into obstacles, temptations, as Father Timothy was saying today, uh, sufferings of various kinds, and we have to carry our cross with Christ, we hope for the future. We hope for the kingdom to come, the new world, not this world. So the new world that's breaking in. Um, so hope is the divine perfection of desire. And again, this is where consumerism is a problem. Desire is an important aspect of our lives. We, we don't often stop to think about it. I've been thinking about it more and more of late for two reasons. One is that uh, I've been reading and rereading the works of uh, René Girard, uh, whose whole idea is based in this idea of desire, especially what he calls mimetic desire, which I won't go into. Uh, but the more I read of him, the more I'm convinced that he's correct in what he has to say about it. Uh, also, Alasdair McIntyre, whom you know is, has been a, a really important influence on my thinking, his last book uh, starts, it, he calls it an essay on desire. Um, and uh, so much of what I'm going to say here is going to draw on his teaching in that book. But if we go to the classic scholastic idea of desire, it's, it always points at something good. We, we want something because we think it's good. Right? We don't desire things that are bad. Even if we seem to desire something that's bad, like if we, if we want to be punished or something like that, uh, or we, we, want, we want to inflict harm on somebody, it comes about as a result of a mistake in some sense. Uh, we could call it a sin. But we think that by doing someone else harm, let's say somebody hurts me and I want revenge, what we really desire in that is some kind of justice. It's just that we're not... We're not desiring it correctly. It's been kind of corrupted by other considerations, by anger, by shame or humiliation. And so these, uh, uh, this aspect of being hurt by someone corrupts this desire for justice. And we want to take vengeance for ourselves. So God says, you know, vengeance is mine, right? Don't, don't exact revenge on each other. God is just and he knows how best to administer justice. We don't, you know, we, we have to wait on that. Uh, but the desire for justice is good. We should desire, we should try to bring it about in certain ways, just not by violence, right? So especially sort of unauthorized force in some way when we take 
take the law into our own hands. Um, but desire, as I say, is always seeking something good. We feel like whatever it is that we want is something that will make us more complete. So it acknowledges an incompletion in us, right? Uh, some of this is somewhat banal. We desire food because if we don't eat, we'll die, right? So there's, it's food is good because it keeps our life going, it keeps our body healthy. <coughs> Sleep is good. Uh, but we can always, uh, the thing about human desire, as opposed to say the desire of animals that don't share fully in our rational faculties, is that uh, uh, because we're made in the image of God and our ultimate desire is for God himself, our desire is potentially infinite. And this makes it dangerous. So we, it's not enough for us to eat what we need to survive and be healthy. We wanna eat as much as possible if it's really good, right? Um, you can, we can think of any number of things that we can desire inordinately, right? More than we need. Uh, this is a sign of our radical incompletion, our, our radical need for God, that only God will satisfy all our desires. And in some sense, this is a really key thing, in some sense, that desire for food, that desire for sleep or rest, these are all things that God gives us to start us moving in, direct, in the direction of him, right? Ultimately, he will be our food, he will be our rest, right? So the things we desire are pointing at something good, they're helping us to own our incompleteness so that we can turn to God and ultimately uh, to desire God for God's own sake, because only he can satisfy this desire. But it's the end of a long process, and hope plays a really important part in this. So McIntyre's book begins by saying, um, you know, all of us experience desire, and when, when someone's life goes wrong, somebody's on the wrong track, it's usually, we can see, it's because of some problem with desire, right? So, you know, some of the easier ones to notice would be addictions, okay? So uh, the good feelings we might get from some kind of drug might, again, point to something, indicate some kind of good that we're seeking to feel good about ourselves, let's say, and that's not a bad thing. But to take drugs to feel good about ourselves, we'll crave more and more, and then our life goes off the rails, right? Um, McIntyre uses subtler ideas though. For example, uh, we can desire too many things and incompatible things, and they could all be good, but if we try to do too many things, we may end up doing them all badly, right? Um, we can focus our desire too narrowly. Uh, I was just reading about uh, football players and one of the big debates now is we, we know the long-term effects of playing violent sports like football. And, uh, you know, how long do you want to play? Do you want to retire when you're 27 and you can still walk and your brain isn't too modeled at this point or muddled? Um, if someone puts all of his eggs in that one basket to play football, once he retires or if he has a serious injury and can't play anymore, now what, right? If, and uh, I saw one of the guys who retired early said, what I tell other guys who are thinking about retirement from football is you need to find something that makes you want to get up in the morning. You have to find something that you want that makes life worth living, right? So desire can go wrong in these different ways. We can want too many things. We can want too few things. Uh, we can want things that we simply uh, aren't entitled to have. And so 
Another aspect of this is that, as I said, some desires are incompatible with each other, even if they're perfectly good things on their own. So for instance, uh, eating cookies and losing weight is the one I usually use, right? So being physically fit is a good thing. Having a dessert is a perfectly good thing, but you know, you might have to choose. Um, my, my sister, uh, my oldest sister just, I spoke to her a couple nights ago and she was recently um, diagnosed as diabetic and the, the doctor said, but if you, you know, watch your sugar, eat these things, get some exercise, uh, you can actually revert to a pre-diabetic state. And um, anyone who knows my sister knows, if you tell her anything, she'll do it like 50 times more <laughs> than is necessary. And so she called and she said, yeah, I'm pre-diabetic. Good for you. But she had to work and she couldn't eat certain things, you know. So even if she wanted, and again, the, the desire might in itself not be wrong, but given her state in life, and she has to make a choice. What do I desire more? My health or having that piece of cake? So what McIntyre says is when we have these incompatible desires, we have to decide which one to desire. And this is a, a profoundly interesting statement because we don't usually think about desires as something we choose. We just think of them as something inherent in us, right? Um, let me give you a different example. Uh, a, a friend of mine who was in the music business uh, did some recitals. He was a singer and he did some recitals and did a recording a French art song with a pianist named Dalton Baldwin. And even if you're really fairly well versed in classical music, you might not have heard of Dalton Baldwin, uh, but he was a fantastic pianist. But he made a choice in his life uh, to uh, be a gardener as well. And he, uh, he felt that his peace of mind, uh, it was necessary for him to grow flowers. This is what he really liked. It, it brought him a certain joy. But this meant he couldn't reach the pinnacle upper echelon of pianism, right? Because if you're going to play the piano at the super top level, you wear gloves all the time. You never do any hard work with your hands at all, even gardening, right? Uh, because you need your fingers to be super responsive. So you make a choice. And uh, do you want to shoot for this you know, be a famous pianist, or do you want to be like really, really, really excellent and expert, but not quite that level? And you can choose, right? And it might be worth choosing this because the flowers might be a really important part of my well-being, right? Because playing at the super upper echelon of classical music is very stressful, right? Not everybody can do it. Not everybody wants it. So he made a choice. You can't be both a gardener and a solo pianist. How about uh, being a surgeon and a race car driver? Uh, if, you're a, if you're a surgeon, you need to train your eyes to look at very small details, right? If you're a race car driver, you have to train your eyes to look at things very far away that are coming at you fast. And um, this is the way the eye works. You can't do both past the age of 30. So you have to make a choice, right? Um, both are perfectly good things to be. And maybe a better example than a race car driver would be like a semi-truck driver, right? So we need semi-truck drivers, we need surgeons, but you can't be the same, both, you can't be both. You have to choose, which one do I want, right? So what McIntyre then goes on in, you know, 300 pages of argumentation is to show that when we sort of make choices between desires, we climb up toward virtue, 
we start to live a good life because we order our desires uh, in order of their importance. Like it's more important to desire things like justice than uh, ham omelette, right? So we might have to forego certain things that we like in order to pursue justice. And we learn over time which things are more desirable for real and not just what I happen to like at the moment or what I happen to like when I was a teenager or whatever. Uh, and he ends, it's very interesting. Uh, you might know McIntyre was um, uh, raised in the, the Church of England, I believe, but was uh, cut his teeth as a philosopher, as a Marxist in the 50s and 60s and then entered the Catholic Church in the 80s as a result of his study of moral philosophy. And so the end of the book, he says, uh, you know, at the top of this scaffolding of desire, uh, we move away from moral philosophy to natural theology, and that's not my specialty, so I'll stop there. So he sort of takes us to the brink of, you know, what we can say without talking about hope as a theological virtue, what we could just say about the natural virtues. But he hints that if we really want to go the next step, we have to believe in God and we have to hope in God. But uh, as an academic, he, he, you know, he brought us right to that point and stopped. So we can choose what we want to desire. Very interesting. This is what the will does, by the way. The will helps us to choose between desires. The spiritual life can be viewed as a progressive learning process whereby we choose better and better goods. And through this understanding, this rational process, we come to a more accurate understanding of God as the true good, okay? How does this happen? If we go back again to the, the fathers of the church, we go back to the fourth and fifth centuries in particular, we see that uh, in the monastic movement, uh, there's this idea that in every subordinate good, so God is the ultimate good, he's the true capital G good, the transcendental good, uh, but every other thing that's good partakes in God's goodness in some way. And the way they would talk about this is that in every, every creature uh, is good because God made it, and every creature was made through the logos, right? So in every creature, we can see a trace of God's reasoning, okay? So logos uh, can mean lots of things in Greek. We usually translate it as word, but it can also mean argument or reason or rationale. And so what we see when we look at good things, we see something of God's own uh, communication of his goodness to us, you know, not just uh, as a kind of general thing, but he's sharing something of himself with us through the logos that uh, keeps all things in being and gives them their, their raison d'etre, you know, the reason for being. Uh, and what, when we look at the world from this perspective, what this was called was natural contemplation. Uh, in the Greek, it was called physike. So physis is the word for nature. And nature doesn't mean uh, what we mean by nature, like uh, all the environment and stuff separated from God. It means the nature of individual things, the essence of things, right? So why God made them? What's the real thing inside the, what we see? Uh, so that's its nature, okay? And so natural contemplation is contemplating these natures of things. What is wood like? What is, I, I often think with the, uh, the liturgy, we get lots of indications, you know, wood 
has to do with the cross. Wood, uh, stone has to do with the altar. Water has to do with baptism. So all these creatures that God made are communicating God all the time. But it's the liturgy that helps us to see how they all fit together. Um, the greatest goods are of the order of the spirit. So one of the things that, again, we, we start to learn is that understanding things, like learning, is really desirable. Right? When we understand how things work, it's very pleasant. We want it, right? Um, it, it makes sense of the world. It gives meaning to things. So what we are trying to do in seeing the things we desire and choosing to desire well uh, is coming to an understanding of what life is like, what the world is like. Um, there are certain laws that we notice in it, you know. Uh, and when we understand these things, we come closer to the mind of God. And this itself, again, brings us uh, a sense of longing to know God as God is and not mediated through creation. Uh, and, and mediated through faith, but face-to-face, as we would say. So we have this uh, desire. Loving rightly, you know, learning how much to... Uh, <laughs> we have a, an old cat, Finn, and uh, uh, Finn's got hyperthyroid something or other, and uh, so his, he's 15 years old. And, uh, you know, the question is, like, how, much, how much medical care do you give a 15-year-old cat? When, uh, you know, your money is coming from your benefactors or <laughs> making gifts to, you know, how, can, how much can you justify? And of course, we all love Finn. He's, he's been a great cat. Uh, he's really good natured and, and laid back. And, uh, but, you know, how do you order these desires rightly? Um, I, I pointed out, you know, we, we re- he was a rescue cat. He probably wouldn't have survived a year uh, had he been uh, out on the streets. It was very, very cold when he... He followed Father Brendan home from the bus stop, ran into the house. Um, so, you know, we've, we've done really good with Finn, and maybe there are other interventions we can do. And, you know, 15-year-old, 15 years is old for a cat. Uh, we should love him with the correct amount of love for uh, a cat, right? Uh, it would be different for a human being. You know, we should order these things in, in correct proportion. Uh, one of the things I, I always find striking about um, uh, the, uh, the 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 Nazis is how much uh, the guys at the top, like uh, Adolf Hitler, loved animals <laughs> and uh, would have the, this great sympathy for animals and just be completely callous toward human beings. Like this is disordered love, right? It's not it's not praiseworthy to love animals that way, right? There's something wrong there, very wrong. So we have to learn, and when we come to this right ordering of things, at first it might be a challenge and it might, uh, we feel in Lent, for example, uh, the, the pain of asceticism because denying ourselves some food, for example, uh, what we're trying to do is get the right order of how much we need food and how important it is to want food and certain types of food, right? And uh, it's hard. It, it doesn't always feel good, uh, but it should then help us to order and say like, later in life, if I need to go without certain foods, I can do it because what I really want is something more important than food, right? So Lent is a time to work on kind of uh, 
chiseling away that desire that, that leads us to short-term satisfaction, creating a space for long-term goals, for eternal happiness, okay? So, God is not a passive presence in this process that I'm talking about because through revelation, he offers us better and better goods to desire, right? So had we not seen the incarnation, had we not had an indication of this mystery, we wouldn't know what it is that God is calling us to as human beings, but he's actually calling us to be uh, part of the body of Christ. So what we thought was the best thing for human nature before the incarnation has been elevated infinitely by the incarnation. So revelation helps to create in us a desire to be divinized, right? Um, the whole liturgy, as I say, the liturgy is really the place where God communicates the proper ordering of things, stone, water, vestment, um, the way where we sit together, who moves where, when, all these things communicate what God's intentions are so we can hope for better and better things and, and follow them back toward God, as it were. Um, so we can learn to desire to be virtuous by coming to love the examples of the saints and of Christ himself. And I would, I'll have to say this, acquiring virtue is much easier when we cultivate the theological virtue of hope. Uh, if we don't have any hope of becoming temperate, just, courageous, or prudent, uh, it's easy to cheat and settle for lesser goods. Uh, so rather than becoming truly wise, for example, with regard to legitimate pleasures, uh, it's easy to choose them in a way that clouds the intellect and we, we don't become temperate. Because if uh, one of the things I, I tell the brothers is, uh, my little saying here is, uh, the cult of authenticity is the enemy of virtue. And what I mean by that is, when we set out to become virtuous, we have to do things that don't feel authentic because we're not virtuous yet. Like if we were virtuous, it would be easy to be temperate. We would simply be temperate. But most of us have not achieved the heights of temperance, the best possible temperance. And to say work toward temperance will feel inauthentic because I'll want more beer or whatever it is, right? And, uh, uh, and I'll say like, well, it just, just isn't me to be temperate like this. Correct, it's not you yet. You need to have hope that you will become temperate by choosing the right things, even when they don't feel authentic. Courage is the best example of this. Um, to become courageous, you have to do things that are courageous, but you won't feel courageous when you're doing it. <laughs> That's the whole idea is you're not courageous yet. But the only way to get there is to do something because that's the courageous thing to do. And we can know this by looking at the lives of the saints or other virtuous persons and imitating them. So this is one of the ways that soldiers become courageous. They, they hang around other people who've already acquired it, right? And they, they imitate them. They see that the, the captain doesn't get upset when he's getting shot at, right? And so when they get afraid, they think, they look at the guy who's not afraid and they say, I want to be like that. So they have hope of becoming like that and then they work at it, but they don't feel it right away. They don't feel courageous. Um, or they might mistake the feeling of courage for rashness. They might think, okay, I'm not scared. I'm gonna go in there and, and do something that's rash instead of courageous. So having hope that I will become virtuous 
is really important because in the time where I'm working at it, I won't feel like I'm making a lot of progress. Okay, uh, that's the tricky part. Or you know, we'll make a little bit of progress and think we're there and then uh, make a mistake. This is typical in Lent, right? You start off with these really strong ideas and then about two weeks in, you start cheating a little bit and then it's uh, depressing. Well, have hope, <clears throat> try to set your aims in the right place, you know? Look at those who've already achieved the virtue you're trying to acquire and try to imitate them. Uh, so, oftentimes uh, to become virtuous, we need first to have an intellectual appreciation of its importance. Um, and this is often because we've, had, we've experienced the bad consequences of misplaced desire. And again, the classic example of this is addiction. Um, oftentimes when someone is suffering from an addiction, in order to get out of it, they have to do things that they really don't want to do. And yet at some level, they do want to do it, <laughs> right? So there's this conflicting desire because on the one hand, I really want to have that next drink. On the other hand, I really want to get sober. And I don't feel good. Uh, so this is uh, one of the reasons it's so hard to quit an addiction. It doesn't feel good to dry out. It feels really awful. And uh, it just takes a long time of feeling awful. And so you need a lot of support. Like it's helpful to have other people giving you support. Um, and then it also helps to have this intellectual reason. Like I don't want to live this way anymore. <laughs> right? And so what happens at uh, like AA meetings, you just have people stand up and give testimony about this is where I was. This is where I ended up. And these were the hard things I had to get through. And, and seeing that it's possible, giving others hope, you can do this too, gives us the energy to get through that hard part where we're changing from a, an intemperate life to a temperate life. Okay, so hope is really important. It often comes to us through the example of others. You know, I hope someday I'll be like, you know, this great abbot that I know, uh, etc. So hope as I say, has to do with transforming desire from smaller desires or from things that we, we know are good for us, but we don't like. Um, so we can learn to like broccoli, for example, but you can't learn to like broccoli without eating it, right? And if you don't like broccoli, when you eat it, you're not gonna like it. So how do you come to like it? Well, you just do it over and over and over again, and then it changes what you desire. We've all had this experience, I think. I, uh, uh, when I was a music student, you know, there were certain composers I didn't like, and when I heard them for the first time, I thought, oh, that's terrible. But then people I respected would say, no, no, you should really listen to that. Uh, you're, just, you're not hearing it right. Just sit there and wait it out. Listen to it five times. This was something uh, a fellow musician and I, we had this rule that we wouldn't comment on a piece of music till we listened to it five times. Uh, because you... The second time you hear it, you start to hear things more, they're more familiar. Oh yeah, I remember that part. And then the third time, you're kind of looking forward to that part you remember, you know? And the fourth time, you're like, oh, this is a really good part. And you realize, hey, I like this piece. I didn't like it when I first heard it. You see, it can also be the case we can learn not to like music that's not good, right? So that's another aspect is I grew up listening to a lot of music that, that wasn't really helpful for me to know. And uh, coming to realize why that's not the best music is an important step in becoming uh, a, a facile musician, right? So what all this means is we can learn to like the things that the saints like by imitating them, by letting them teach us, showing us 
what a good life really looks like, uh, hoping to be like them, seeing what they went through, you know, reading their lives and taking stock of the fact that it's hard, but it's possible. You know, God's grace makes everything possible. Uh, So we can do this in the spiritual life. We can learn to desire fasting. St. Benedict says we should like fasting. Uh, We can desire keeping vigil and praying. Uh, We do it by doing these practices, even when we don't feel like it, but doing it in, in hope that we will eventually be the sorts of persons who will desire fasting, that we'll desire uh, prayer and so on. Last of all, hope is an eschatological orientation, I said at the very beginning. That means it, it is a virtue that trains us to look at the last things, to look at the end, uh, not, to, not to get caught up in the immediate, but to look long-term, eternal life. In the end, our best and most real desires will be fulfilled by God himself. So any desire that I deny myself now, I can have hope that God will eventually uh, give it back to me, but in a purified and better state because it'll be God himself. I want to conclude uh, by reflecting on a topic that I brought up in my last conference on hope, uh, and I've hinted at it here and there, and that is uh, the role of politics in the cultivation of hope. And I say this not because I I think we should be political, and you'll hear that um, certainly we monks should not be in the sense that most people mean it. But at the same time, we should be because what we proclaim is the kingdom of God, the city of God. uh, We are going toward the kingdom, which is going to have a kind of order to it that is going to make sense of the provisional orders that we see in in this world, right? Right. But there are certain obstacles, particular obstacles, in our historical situation and cultural situation that make hope difficult. That's what I want to finish with. (coughs) So uh, since the French Revolution, I would say, there's been one kind of governing idea of politics in the West for the most part, um, with a few holdovers from the earlier medieval arrangement. Uh, And now people who think about the earlier medieval arrangement are, are considered really weird But uh, uh, this post-revolutionary mindset, which I would personally call liberalism and and just the sense of uh, uh, the freedom of the individual to govern himself and the freedom of association between individuals, the freedom to choose the kind of government we want to have together. uh, This is the goal of most modern Western thinking and politics. And politics being of this world, you know, it's never going to be perfect. So that's really the first thing I really need to emphasize. So anything I say that's critical about any order or praiseworthy about any order, it's all provisional. Uh, and uh, I mentioned in my last talk, Pope Benedict in his encyclical on hope said that it's important for every generation to have the right to decide how we want to live. And uh, we shouldn't necessarily uh, feel like uh, all... Progress has been uh, finished or something. So the extremes on both sides of this liberal order, which uh, it's hard to exactly get the terminology, but say like, so this is my left, so this would be progressivism and this would be like libertarianism (coughs) here. Um, The problem with both of these is that they're, they're actually both kind of 
uh, imminent eschatological ideas. What I mean by that is they both want to proclaim that we figured out the final political order. This is how it is. There's no doubt that socialism is how things have to be. Like this is, and if you don't believe that, you're a bad person, <laughs> right? But at the same time, we have people on the other side who say like, yes, free markets. This was, uh, you know, Francis Fukuyama in 1991 or whatever, the end of history. We've discovered the final best way of ordering our world and it's free markets. It's a democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And um, no, there's something exciting about those for people who want justice, who want a good life, who want uh, solidarity with their brothers and sisters. Uh, but it's dangerous precisely because as I say, all political orders in this world are provisional. And anytime we say we've, we've discovered the final political order, we don't need hope anymore. <laughs> and I think this is one of the reasons why we, first of all, see people so caught up in politics and so hopeless. <laughs> because they put all their hope in the political and um, it doesn't pan out, you know? Uh, I, I've, in recent years, I've been thinking more about American history. This same friend of mine who uh, we had the five listens rule, uh, he went from being a professional drummer to being a, a history teacher, American history teacher. And uh, so we, we talk about American history. And what's interesting is how when we talk today about, we argue about what America should be like, you know, we can appeal to the Founding Fathers, we can appeal to sort of the progressivist movement of Roosevelt and Wilson, we can appeal to Roosevelt, uh, 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 Franklin Roosevelt, uh, we can appeal to Lyndon Johnson or Kennedy or Reagan or whoever, uh, but we, we tend to do it kind of ahistorically because we're trying to, and, and we should in a way, because we don't live in 1980 anymore, nor do we live in 1789. Um, but we're trying to draw on common themes that we have together so that we together can make decisions today and do the best we can to arrange things in a way that will be to the benefit of the most people today. Uh, and anytime we say like there's only one answer, we're at risk of cutting ourselves off from hope uh, because we get stuck in trying to fix all the problems here. And <coughs> again, in an older order, McIntyre talks about this in uh, After Virtue, um, even someone as, as kind of progressive as Machiavelli uh, recognized that in politics, fortuna plays a really important part. Fortune, you know, luck, dumb luck. Uh, we can't ever order things in such a way that, uh, you know, some new coronavirus won't show up and throw all our plans into, into the air. We can't ever know in this world. And so anytime we try to think, okay, now I've got it, I, fig I figured it out, we're going to lose hope, right? So part of hope, again, is acknowledging that I'm incomplete. I never can complete myself, either by politics or by art or by any of these great things. But instead, these things should awaken in me a desire for the final revelation of, of God's justice, of God's beauty, God's goodness, and uh, we don't want to get caught, stuck short in any of these things. Um, I mentioned the liturgy before. And as I say, the, the liturgy is that place where we enter into that final order. And we, we glimpse it in sacrament and in mystery. But we actually see how we should relate to each other 
in God's order in the end time. Because actually, um, you know, in the Catholic Church, we talk about the Eucharist as a foretaste of the kingdom to come. Uh, and all the liturgy is that, but the Eucharist is the center of the liturgy. So the final kingdom will be like one long banquet. But we won't just sit any old place. We're going to sit in a place that, you know, God has ordained for us with the people that we're ordained to be with, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there will be uh, an ordering to this. And it's not the order that we see here, even in the, in the um, I, I wanted to mention this to the brothers because uh, when one's a cleric and an ordinary of the church like I am and you start talking this way, it can sound like I'm saying, ah, yes, you see the, the abbots and priors will be sitting right here. And uh, it, no, uh, I, I function as a symbol of Christ's presence and a certain kind of ordering principle that we're all subordinate to Christ. And so certain persons in the church, bishops and other ordinaries, <coughs> occupy certain places of authority, not because this shows that we're better or we're gonna have a better place in the kingdom, <coughs> but to help you all uh, see how Christ is acting in the church in some way. So to be a symbol of our subordination to Christ's will, right? And the Father's will, so that God will be all in all. Um, but in the liturgy, again, when we see the priest and the deacon, uh, the thurifer, the monks, the people processing in for communion, going back to their pews, all these things were doing politics for the kingdom of God, the final real politics, okay? Um, and this should then influence how we think about what we do when we leave the church but it should that only in the literature you get a glimpse of what this final order will be, other than you know we can think about it outside the liturgy. But the ordering of uh, this world, you know, Jesus says very clearly, many are who are first will be last. Like the order could be completely upside down. Uh, we it's we don't really know by looking at who's powerful in this world or who's important or anything like that. You know, and next to God, none of us are very important, you know. <laughs> uh, he, he will have the last say in any of these things. And to the extent that we can give ourselves over uh, to his will, we will be at peace. And peace is, according to Augustine, the tranquility of order. So we can hope for this order, you know, this, this rest, uh, this final perfection of things where everything will make sense. Uh, but we have to make sure that we don't confuse it with anything we see in the world that's passing away, but we see in mystery, in sacrament, in sign. Um, so monasticism from this perspective should be a permanent affront to all worldly politics, <laughs> to all uh, worldly eschatology. In other words, any political system that claims that it's figured everything out, monasticism should always call that into question. And I think this is, uh, if I ever write my memoir, this will be why I went from being a rock musician to being a monk, because they both call into question the order of things, right? And I was looking for something and being kind of a, uh, a gadfly artistic type back in the day. What I was really looking for was what the monastery represents, which is a relativization of anything in the world and a proclamation of the one thing that matters, which is God's will, God's will. Um, but now, so that's true for monks, but I also think Lent should be the same thing for all of you. Uh, by observing Lent, uh, you call into question all the things that people think are important in the world. Uh, 
So, you know, one of my sort of respectable jobs as a musician was singing with the Rockefeller Chapel Choir. And uh, Wednesday nights we had our rehearsal. And it was the last big rehearsal for the week in the groups I was in. So we, a group of us, you know, 10 or 15 of us would go to Jimmy's Woodlawn Tap on uh, 55th Street in Hyde Park and, you know, kind of relax because we're halfway through the week and so on. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, we'd get uh, Italian beef and, and uh, pitchers of really weak beer and all this. Uh, except on Ash Wednesday, when I would show up with ashes on my head and wouldn't have any beer. And if I had anything, it would be a grilled cheese sandwich. And I'd, have, I'd get razzing from <laughs> all my non-Catholic uh, singer friends. But it was important, you know, to say like, yeah, it's, it's good to be with friends. It's, it's good to, to eat your Italian beef and relax after working hard. That's all perfectly good, unless it, if we forget about what our final good is. And, and to remember that requires us to deny ourselves from time to time and do so in a way that others can see. Uh, not, not to call attention to ourselves in the sense of, uh, you know, that Jesus says we should... Uh, perform our acts of penance in secret, but in the sense of reminding ourselves and others that we're after something more important than this friendship that we have, as, as good as that is. And if I'm a true friend to you, I'm going to remind you of this in some way, even if it's painful <clears throat> for me to do so, even if I get razzed, right? I get uh, uh, criticized or even persecuted that might happen. So. Uh, we are proclaiming something that is breaking into this world, but is not yet here. So we have to create this sense of hope, this sense of lack, this sense of need for God, and to help others see this, to see what is truly desirable in God, uh, to set ourselves in relation to God's purposes, to desire uh, that which is desirable for its own sake. Christ's glory, God being all in all. The Holy Spirit opens the meaning of present things, but only to the extent that we learn to deny ourselves and look for God's meanings, that is to say no to lesser desires, <coughs> to learn to choose better and better, and in the end to choose the one thing necessary. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll take questions for five minutes if you have any. Um, yes, Michael, start with Michael, and then Charlie. So what you're, uh, in a sense, talking about here is, just to talk about it, I'm going to start mixing some metaphors. It's almost like we need to evangelize the sense of hope. Yeah, be evangelized by it, yeah. Well, but, uh -huh. um, see, I would say that mm -hmm. our contemporary society as you were pointing out, we're almost forced to choose politically, in a mm -hmm, sense. Mm -hmm. And it's not just uh, political parties, but it's a world vision. Mm -hmm. And it's a world vision that's um, uh, probably more immediate than we care to admit. Yeah. yeah. However, uh, there are many who say that the world's going to end in 12 years if mm -hmm. we don't do something. And <clears throat> 20 years ago, we were dealing with Y2K. Uh, right now, there's the uh, current concern about COVID-19. So, to go back to my question, uh, do you have any thoughts, any ideas, any suggestions on how we can evangelize this sense of hope? How we, 
can somehow counter, I wouldn't say it's pessimistic, but it's, it's, it, it seems like uh, people are trying to convince us that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, yeah. and if we don't subscribe to their world view, we're just, you know, shame on us, we're adding not only to our near-term misery, but our, mm -hmm. our own damnation. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, those, a lot of those questions, you know, those scientific questions are really beyond my competency to comment on. I was just using that as an example. Yeah, but I, I know what you mean. I think that's, that's part of the difficulty is that it's assumed that, uh, that this, the science of it translates into a moral duty. And um, the, it, it puts the moral duty someplace at a very abstract level that's hard to deal with as an individual. And you know what? What our Lord asks us to do is to love our neighbor, right? So I think if we if we focus on that, um, doing what we can to show love for our neighbor, and build up small communities, we'll have a more effective way of dealing with the big problems. I think um, when we when we put everything at that high level, I think there's a lot of despair there because as individuals, even as like small groups. There's almost nothing we can do if, if, if the world decides to keep pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. There's nothing you and I as individuals can do, even if we go out and yell at everybody and tell them to change. Uh, on the other hand, we have to love one another, right? And, and, um, uh, and I think vilifying other people because they have a different opinion from us on these, these political issues is a real problem because it doesn't allow us to... Um, listen, listen from a standpoint of charity. And uh, that's hard because people are gonna say stuff that we're gonna feel like is not reasonable, fair, um, and yet uh, that imperative of, of love of neighbor requires us to be patient in that and to look at our own faults first. So I, I think this is part of the difficulty again is that the way politics is portrayed is it's something that we should all be worried about and I say, to me, that contributes to this lack of hope because we, we can't possibly, uh, we, we, we can cooperate with God for our eternal salvation, but we can't really cooperate with anybody to save this world because it's going to end when it ends. We don't have to go <coughs> over there. And we never will, you know. Um, Charlie was going to say something. I, I hope that gets at your, yeah, it's, it's a tough question, but. Open-ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charlie, what are you going to ask? Let's say we say the philosophers or schools of philosophy and say that hope is a, Vice, not a virtue. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I know what you're talking about. Let me think. Uh, what would we say to that? Yeah, I think that's part of the, the, um, the thing that makes us despair again. Because, um, uh, yeah, it, it, they confuse it with quietism, right? And what this does is it doesn't give God any scope for action. Right, so I had uh, lunch with an old friend of mine when I was in New York a couple weeks ago, and he's fallen away from the faith. And uh, I was talking about this, and I said, you know, I want people to think about what God is doing, and to leave the po leave open the possibility that God's actually acting in your life, like He's doing stuff right now. And he said, yes. Yeah. So I had an aunt like this, and her child died of some disease or other, right? <laughs> And uh, I don't see that the two, uh, I think that kind of polarization, it's, it's one or the other, is just not human. You know, it's, it's not how we experience things because there's no reason to think that God doesn't inspire the scientists and doctors who cure disease. I don't see why we should give up that. 
But at the same time, we shouldn't just say like it's up to us because uh, it's very strange how people are inspired to figure things out. It's very unpredictable. We can't know who's going to invent. You know, we didn't, nobody thought of smartphones 50 years ago and now they're everywhere. You know, we couldn't have predicted it. Um, And so we just don't know, but God is active and he'll show us what we need to know to cooperate with his will, and that will bring about his purposes, which are much better than anything we can imagine. So I think hoping in that is really important because it uh, not only does it bring us peace of mind, which allows us to think clearly, but it, 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 gives that, uh, it gives us space to be creative. You know, part of the problem with politics, again, is it's this one-track thing. There's no creativity about it. Well, we could do this or we could do that. We could, you know, there could be a completely new political philosophy that comes up in 10 years that nobody's thinking about now. We don't know. We can always hope, you know. So, Mark. Um, I've been wanting to ask you <laughs> yeah. like the last hour to repeat what you said about authenticity and virtue. Yes. Virtue. Sure. Yeah. So, the cult of authenticity is the enemy of virtue. So, yes. It's a. Uh, Christian French philosopher, I think it was Marcel Gabriel. Yeah. He said, uh-huh. of, he said of his contemporary Jean Paul Sartre that he was the like, most <coughs> audacious, demonstrated the most audacious refusal of grace he had ever mm. seen. Uh-huh. And just instantly when you say authenticity, obviously I'm not trying to name drop, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm thinking of Sartre. Just sure. Just throw yourself into the world. Yep. Just throw yourself into the void in order to exist. Yep, yep. And it's just... And I think, you know, it, it's interesting as you're saying that, it, it's, it's a variation on uh, the, the Cartesian problem, which is the idea that somehow we start as a blank slate and we can, we can determine things without any background. I mean, we're completely determined by our language, by our, our personal histories and all that. And um, uh, they will, what will feel authentic to us again will probably be oftentimes just the sort of thing that's keeping us from actually growing, yeah. right? And uh, to grow, we have to stretch ourselves in ways that feels inauthentic. Uh, but, you know, there's no growth without uh, some growing pains, right? I mean, there's, again, for me, this has always been a little easier as a musician because if you want to improve your piano skills, especially, I mean, you just have to practice like five or six hours a day and it's painful. Some days you don't want to do it. It hurts, you, know, you, get, you get pain all through here, and you play the same thing 50,000 times, and you're, and, and you're paying, and then you go to your lesson, and your teacher tells you, oh, that was terrible. <laughs> so you know, it, it takes a, a certain uh, resilience to say like, okay, this, I believe that I'm eventually gonna be able to play this well, but in the meantime, it's gonna be really painful. You know? And so I accept that, that I'm not a good pianist yet. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to stop here and turn over. So yeah, what's that? Be so much fun. Great, I, I really appreciate that. <laughs>